Love it. Well, man, it's so good seeing you guys here today. Good morning. Welcome to Local, and thanks for making church part of your Sunday. Love having you guys here. Um, That second song that we sang where it was just praising God for what he's done, we thank him, we praise him, we recognize all that he's done. Man, I love that song, and I love that that we take time to do that on a Sunday, but man, I think we can lean in even just a little bit more. Uh, so I wanna spend just a minute and, and, and just celebrate and thank God for some of the things that he's done that many of you might not have any idea about. And that's what's pretty cool about being part of the body of Christ and being part of his church is God is moving and doing so many things in so many people's lives, but we don't always know about it, but we still get to be part of it, and of course, we can celebrate it. So I want to share uh, something that happened last Sunday night. Our high school ministry, ninth through 12th graders, meet every single Sunday night. And last Sunday night was a super special night for our student ministry because I'll show you a picture of what it looked like. But eight students went public with their faith through baptism this last Sunday. Such a cool moment. Um, and, and again, whether you have students or not, whether you have that age group or not, whether you were there or not, we as the body of Christ, we get to celebrate that. And we get to celebrate the joy of new life that you see on their faces. Um, So it's not just, ooh, you get to celebrate what you see. We get to be part of celebrating life change and celebrating all that God has done and is doing whether you actually saw it or not. And I'm excited because I'm gonna stand on this very stage a week from today, and I'm gonna do the same thing, but instead of highlighting what happened in student ministry, I'm gonna celebrate at least seven baptisms that celebrate recovery this coming Tuesday. So that's awesome. So get ready to celebrate next week too, because we keep seeing God move and do incredible things, but we don't always see it. And so it's important that we always, as the body of Christ, as the church, we look back and we thank him for what he has done. Let me kind of back up a little bit and just kind of catch up some of you if you haven't been with us. We are going through the study. We call it a slow study through the gospel of Mark. We started in January. We will end on Easter where we are doing just that. We are kind of slowly walking through the gospel of Mark so we can really understand who Jesus is, but also what he came to do. And so today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. If you want to get your Bibles out, Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be for uh, the entire morning. If you haven't had a chance to jump into our Bible reading plan yet, I'm going to put that on the screen as well. It's a great opportunity to just text in, text Bible to the number that you'll see. And here's what's great about it. You're going to get a text message on Monday, and it's going to tell you what to read with a prayer or a thought or a question just to be thinking on and reflecting on as you read. But as you read it, if you've been part of this, you know, it's not just read it and be done, is it? No, it's like you're going to read that passage. It's only a chapter or two. Read a passage on Monday, reread it Tuesday, reread it on Wednesday. The idea is that we sit in that same scripture for the entire week and allow God to reveal things to you and show you things and teach you things and speak to you in different ways as you sit in that passage instead of just blowing through it. Uh, So if you haven't been part of that, I highly encourage it. It's a great way to take what we study here and dive in just a little bit deeper on your own. Well, let me pray for us and then we will jump into Mark chapter 10. God, thank you so much for what you have done. I pray that we, we never neglect looking back and seeing all that you've done and the lives that you changed and how you've impacted our own personal lives and the life of our church and all that you are, are doing. God, thank you so much for what you have done. And as we open up your word and see what you, you have said and what it still says to us today, I would pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us that you would begin to change us from the inside out. As we open your word, God, would you continue to speak through your Holy Spirit as we listen for you today? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So be in Mark chapter 10. We'll be there in just a second. Uh, But Valentine's Day was a couple weeks ago. 
So I have in my hand the Valentine's Day cards from my kids. They wrote me and Becky kids, which is super sweet and nice. I do want to read to you what my oldest son, Connor, he's 11, what he wrote to me for my Valentine's Day card from him. Here's what he wrote. I'm going to read it. You can see it up there. He says, Dear Dad, I love you because you are funny and kind, because you make jokes and you are a yellow, so that makes sense. Now, let me explain the yellow thing if you don't know. Uh, there's a temperament kind of test. You know, there's like Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, all these. There's also ones that I said this, you heard that. We use that in our family. We even use that on our church staff. And it's four colors, yellow, red, blue, green. Um, so if you can't kind of figure it out, yellow is, woohoo! look at me, I love the spotlight. So that makes sense. Uh, so that's common language in our family. So Connor was calling that out. So you're a yellow, you, that makes sense. Uh, he said, you also do a lot of things for me even though you're old now. <laughs> you are a great dad and you teach me a lot of things and help me if I need it. You also make dinner or do laundry for me. You may be old now, getting wrinkles and having back problems, but you're still a good dad. <laughs> I love that. What he wrote is 100% true though. I mean, I, I can't get mad at him. When he gave it to me and I read it, I was like, Connor, like, Thanks, kind of, I think. But what you said was true. I can't get mad about that. But that's true about kids, though, isn't it? Like, they see the world very differently. They approach the world very differently. They speak about the world very differently. They have no filters. They are very honest. They are very transparent. And I mention that because Jesus is going to use kids in the passage we're going to see today to help us answer a very, very important question of what does it really mean to, to enter into the kingdom of God? What does it really look like to, in, in some of the language we're going to see today, receive the kingdom of God or inherit the kingdom of God, inherit eternal life? So Mark chapter 10, verse 13, we're going to see kind of two moments. One is going to be, they're going to basically contrast each other. The first one is going to be a, a teachable moment Jesus uses about these kids. Then the second one is going to show almost the opposite of that, with a dialogue and an interaction he has with a man that we would know as the, the rich, young ruler. We know he was rich, young, and some kind of ruler. He had some kind of power based on what we read, not just in Mark, but the other Gospels. They all point to that uh, being some of his qualities. So let's start with the first one, and we'll walk through it. Verse 13 out of Mark chapter 10. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch them and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. Now he's going to give a teachable moment. Look at what he says at verse 15. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God, say the word receive. That's such an important word today. Say receive. 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 Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on their heads, and blessed them. That word there, receive, means to welcome it. It's, it's to take something. It's to accept something. You're not doing anything in order to get it. You are just empty-handed, open-handed, and you're receiving it. Now, Jesus uses this moment with kids and children to kind of point to, yeah, like, that's who, that's who the kingdom of God belongs to. That's who receives the kingdom of God. That's who enters into the kingdom of God. It's these kids. So let me just read off a list. Um, I mean no disrespect when I read this. I've got three kids of my own. Um, but tell me if you don't think this describes kids not necessarily in a negative way. They are dependent. They are needy, completely undeserving. They are unproductive, helpless, sometimes hopeless. 
They don't contribute. They're not very capable or able. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Now, what's interesting is parents, we read that and we're like, yes, and it drives me nuts. It drives me crazy that they are so helpless. I want to teach them to do things for themselves. It drives me crazy that they are so dependent. I want to teach them to be independent. I'm tired of having to do everything for them. I want them to start contributing to the world. And so we give them opportunities. Do you see what we do? We take their natural qualities of needy and dependent and and basically, again, empty-handed. And over the course of our parenting, then we try to turn all of those around. But what's fascinating is Jesus says, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is for them. You want to enter the kingdom of God? You want to receive the kingdom of God? You have to be like that, dependent, needy. All the things that we're trying to fix in our kids, Jesus highlights and says, no, spiritually speaking, that's what it looks like. That's what a childlike faith looks like, dependent, needing, undeserving, unproductive, helpless, not contributing, not capable, but there's one other quality, trusting. Kids are very trusting. Once again, as parents, what is part of our job? Don't be so trusting. Be skeptical of people. Stranger danger. We're teaching them to not trust as much. And again, Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's what I want from you, to be trusting. In other words, I've said it a couple times already, but kids have empty hands. They haven't accomplished anything. They haven't done anything. They don't have anything to offer. They come with empty hands, but a whole heart. So I want those two ideas to be just resonating in your mind as we go through the rest of this passage. Kids come empty-handed, but with a whole heart. And Jesus highlights them and says, that is what it looks like. That is who will, again, the word, what is it? Receive. Those that are like this, dependent and needy, empty-handed but wholehearted, those are the ones that receive the kingdom of God. So that's where he starts. Now we're going to see Mark gives us another moment that is almost the exact opposite of this. Verse 17, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, now that should trigger something. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Remember, Jerusalem is showing us that Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. We see this throughout the the last half of Mark, that every time Mark mentions where he's going, he's getting a step closer to Jerusalem, which we know what that means, that one step closer to Jerusalem means one step closer to the cross and his crucifixion and eventual resurrection. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago where Mark, the gospel of Mark, is split into like two sections. The first one is about who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. The second part, which we're in now, is so where's he going? What is he doing, and what does it mean for us to follow him? So that Jerusalem word should stick out to us. We see that Jesus continues to be on his way to the cross. So as Jesus started out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now that's a very different approach than what Jesus just taught taught on. He just said those that receive the kingdom of God are going to be like these little children, dependent and needy, helpless, empty-handed, wholehearted. They receive the kingdom of God. And here's this man that, again, we know is rich, young, and has power and influence. He comes and falls at Jesus' feet and says, here's what I've done. What else do I need to do? So we see one picture of empty hands, one with very full hands, both in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus uses both to explain what does it look like to inherit eternal life or to enter the kingdom of God or to receive the kingdom of God. You see how those look very different? This man comes to Jesus and uses that question, what do I need to do? It's not a terrible question, but it's definitely not the best question. 
Because receiving and doing are extremely different. And Jesus is going to help this man understand that. Verse 18, here's Jesus' reply. Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. Let me spend 30 seconds-ish and explain that part right there. Because that kind of hangs up, can get you hung up a little bit. So this man, do you remember what he called Jesus? He came and knelt down at his feet. What did he call Jesus? Did you catch it? Good teacher, right? And so now he's asking, good teacher, what other good things do I need to do so I can become good like you? That's kind of what he's asking. And Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? No one's good except God. That comes out of Psalms. Now, we know Jesus is God. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, well, this man, though, doesn't see me as God. He's, this man doesn't see Jesus as Savior or Messiah. He sees him as a what? What did he call him? A good, he calls him a good teacher. So Jesus is saying, I'll play your game with you. No one's good except God. You think a teacher can just be really good and you can just do some more good things to be good like them, to inherit eternal life? That's not how it works. So this man's focus is so, he's hyper-focused on the idea of doing the right and good things. And Jesus has kind of given him a big picture of like, just so you know, no one's good enough. No one can be good enough. You cannot do enough good. Only God is good. But I'll still kind of indulge you and I'll answer your question for you. So that's what verse 18 was about. Verse 19. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. That's a lie. You must not cheat anyone and honor your father and mother. He's quoting part of the Ten Commandments. Verse 20, this man's response, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now, first of all, I'm gonna, we're going to call out that that's probably not true. I've obeyed all of these since I was young. No chance, no chance. But we're going to play along for a little bit. Let's see what's actually happening here. Let's first talk about the Ten Commandments because Jesus quotes them. If you counted them up, you'll notice that there's not ten. There's actually six that Jesus quotes. And in fact, the six that Jesus mentions to this man are very significant. So let's do a little, if you don't remember all your Ten Commandments, that's okay, we're going to help you out. So this is the Ten Commandments. They usually are listed five and five, one on each side, right? Uh, but if you look at them categorically, it's actually four and six. So the first four, no other gods, no idols, don't misuse God's name, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those four are all focused on our relationship with God, our love of God, our devotion to God, our commitment and loyalty to God. That's all the first four. Then the last six, five through 10, are all about how we interact with people around us. So we honor our father and mother. We do not murder, we don't commit adultery, we don't steal, lie, or covet. Jesus uses the, the language, kind of the meaning here of cheating. That's the idea of coveting. I will do whatever it takes to get what I want and move you out of the way. That's coveting, that's cheating, that's the action of that. So Jesus, when he mentions these to this man, he's just quoting the last six. And it's not that Jesus doesn't think the first four are important. He's not skipping them or moving past them. I'm gonna give you my, my, my opinion here. I always think that's important. This is not in the Bible. This is Brian's opinion, so I could be wrong. But I think what Jesus is doing is he's looking at the man and saying, all right, let's just talk about the basic and most obvious commandments, those last six and how you interact with others because those are the ones that you can tell if somebody's followed them or not. You know if somebody's killed somebody or not. It's kind of obvious, right? The first four are a little bit more internal. They're a little bit more of, of how you interact with God on your own, in your heart, with your thoughts, in your own home. It's, very, it's more private, those first four are. The last six are pretty public. So 
I think Jesus is using those last six to just say, and this is like the, the basic standard, but the standard is still perfection. And you know these, and we know if you followed them or not. And what's interesting is even with me reading them in my, from, from myself, I read these and I'm like, whoo, missed a couple of those like this weekend, this morning, <laughs> right? We're pretty aware of that, right? Let's just go through this. I'm not gonna have you raise your hand at all because we know what that would do, uh, but let's just go through them for a second, right? Jesus mentions, you know the commands. He, he starts really, really easy and says, you must not murder. Now, that seems like an easy one for most of us. However, go back and reread the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and Jesus redefines the intent of these commands. He's like, it's not just about like not killing somebody. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, even if you've harbored hate and anger and bitterness against someone else in your heart, you've committed murder against them. So like, okay, well, I've already messed up on that one. Uh, let's go to the other one. Commit adultery. Well, it seems like a pretty obvious standard, but he's like, no, 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 let me make this a little bit more clear. Even if you've lusted in your heart, then you have committed adultery. And then he leans in again. He says, you must not steal, lie, cheat. Let's talk about honoring your father and mother all the time, right? So like you just read those and we know we have not been able to keep those perfectly. Maybe we're doing better, but if you looked at our entire life, there's no way we've kept these perfectly. But this man does not have the response that maybe we would expect. His response, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these since I was young. In other words, let me go through the Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah, yep, nailed it. What else you got? What else do I need? I got all those. Check, 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 check. I'm good. What else do I need to do? By the way, that's not the right response. Can we all agree on that? Because when we are faced with the law, we see something very interesting in what the law was intended to do. Let me give you two responses. The first one is what we see this man do. I'm good. I've done all those. What else? Wrong response. The right response is, wow, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I am sinful. You, like, you just started reading off those commandments, and I can recognize today how I've broken those. I am so sorry. I'm repenting. I need your mercy, I need your grace, I need you to forgive me. I, I can't keep going on, I can't do those commands. Do you hear those two different responses? So Jesus is showing this man the law, trying to help him see his brokenness, his flaws, and his sin. Paul talks about that idea, I'm gonna bounce around, we're gonna be in Galatians and Romans just for a quick second, because Paul talks about this idea of the law and grace, he talks a lot about it, big ideas, big theology. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse 19. Paul writes, when, why then was the law given? Such a good question. Let's talk about it. Why was the law given? Because we feel this tension, don't we? That, well, if I'm given the commands and I'm supposed to follow them, but I can't follow them per perfectly, they seem impossible, but then there's grace, so does it mean like I just do whatever I want and I'm like, I'm saved by grace? And like, there's a tension there between the law and grace. Why then was the law given? Look, it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins, to show us, oh, we are not perfect. We cannot obtain perfection. Verse 21, if you go down just a little bit, is there conflict then between God's law and God's promise? No, absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But we can't, can we? Verse 22, but the scriptures declare, that's a strong word, that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive, there's that word again, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. The difference of receiving versus I just got to do all the right things and do enough good, 
Romans, Paul speaks to the same idea to the early church in Rome. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as, as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. I love that. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in, look, eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Paul is saying is exactly uh, helping sum up what Jesus is doing with this man. He's like, you cannot do enough good. You cannot be good enough. You don't come to Jesus with full hands of all the things you've done. You come like a child that's desperate and needy and dependent and empty-handed but with a whole heart and said, I can't do what you're asking me to do. I cannot follow these commands perfectly. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. See, when we hold up the law, it should point us to our need for a savior. Ben Stewart, a pastor in Washington, D.C., he explained these passages in Galatians and Romans uh, like the law is almost like an x-ray. Right, so let's say you hurt your hand. So you go to the ER and, and they x-ray your hand and sure enough, they look at it and like, oh, you're right, Brian. Like I can see here in the x-ray, I can see your brokenness. The x-ray reveals what is broken. You know what the x-ray cannot do? Fix anything. You've never heard an x-ray tech take a picture of your hand that's broken and say, oh yeah, I see the broken bone. Let's take a few more pictures, see if that helps. Let me just keep clicking away. Maybe that'll get the bones back together again. Let's see if that heals your brokenness. It doesn't do that, does it? No. The intent and purpose of an x-ray machine is just to show and reveal the brokenness. Just like the law. We cannot follow the law perfectly. But the law is to show us that we are in desperate need of a savior. We are sinners. We are broken. And it should move us to Jesus. Because just like that x-ray, you take that picture of your broken hand. Nothing's been fixed yet. So what do you do? You go to the doctor and you say, here's the picture of my broken hand. Now what do I need to do and how can you help me and will you do something? Just like we look at this and we hear Jesus' list and we're like, Jesus, I can't do this. I'm a sinner. I, I, I need you. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need that every day. So Jesus, here's my brokenness. I come empty-handed and with a whole heart, but I come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to do this. I need you to fix me. I need you to change me. I need you to help me because I cannot do this on my own. That's the response Jesus was hoping for out of this man. Instead, the man's like, no, 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 I'm good, I got it. Look at all I've done. He comes with full hands, looking for what else he needs to do, not empty hands, looking for a savior. Here's how Jesus responds back to him. Verse 21, don't overlook this. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Even though this man has got it all wrong, even though he came to Jesus with the wrong posture, even though he came to Jesus pretty much blinded of his own sin and his own brokenness, he still, Jesus still looked at him and had genuine love on him. He had genuine love for him. And then he said this, there is still one thing you haven't done. In other words, you want to talk about all the things you come to me with? You want to talk about all the things you have done? It's time I point out what you're still lacking. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give that money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus is doing exactly what the law was intended to do. He's holding the law up as an x-ray would and he's helping this man see his brokenness. He's helping this man see his flaws. He's helping this man see where his loyalty truly lies. 
Because what's interesting about what Jesus tells him to go and do, sell everything, give it to the poor, and then follow me, that really could sum up the first four commandments. Can we put the commandments back up real quick? So the last six, remember, focus on our relationship with other people. If you look at the first four, it focuses, again, on our love, loyalty, and trust of God. And so for Jesus to say, go and sell everything and then follow me, no other gods, no idols, the misuse of God's name. In other words, he's using God's name in this case, not physically, uh, literally his name, but he wants to know how to get into heaven. Like if I just do what God wants me to do, so he's, he's abusing the name of God and the intent of God. Remember the Sabbath day, that has all to do with trusting God, trusting God with more, right? It's I'm gonna do less, so God does more. It's a whole thing on trust. So you could look at what Jesus told this man to do and Jesus is like, all right, you think you got the last six, but you hadn't even gotten the first four yet. Who's your idol? What little G God are you following? In other words, what are you still holding on to? See, Jesus, for Jesus here, this is not about money. This is not a financial talk. This is not a giving talk. This is not a lesson on money with this man. It's a lesson of choice. Are you going to choose God or are you going to choose all your possessions and your stuff? You say you've, you've come to me with all these things, but would you give them all up to follow him? To follow me, Jesus says. So it really comes down to choice. What is this man truly holding on to? What is keeping him from truly following Jesus? What does it look like for this man to go from full hands to empty hands? Empty hands and a whole heart, just like the children. Now, this should make us think back, if you're here a couple weeks ago, if you've got a paper Bible, it's literally one page over. If you go to Mark chapter 8, this sounds very similar to what Jesus already taught on. Jesus said this in verse 34. He said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Look, if you try to hang on to your life, if you try to hold on to it, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, for the sake of the good news, you will save it. The whole point, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? That sounds like what he's trying to explain to this man here. It's like you're holding on to all this stuff. Come to me empty-handed. That's how you receive the kingdom of God. That's how you enter eternal life or receive eternal life. It has nothing to do with what you do. Do you know me and do you have empty hands? Here's the bottom line here. The bottom line, oftentimes we try to just put more Christian things in our life, right? We just try to add more Jesus. We try to just do more good. And there's a place for that. We'll talk about it here in a little bit. But the posture of how we start in our relationship with God is empty-handed, desperate and needy, just like Jesus described those kids. It's not just adding a little bit of Jesus to your life. Following Jesus, truly following Jesus is choosing Jesus over everything else. That's it. And that's the choice that Jesus was giving to this man. He's like, let's just talk about your choice. Forget all the good things you've done and all the commands you've supposedly kept. <laughs> Who do you choose? Me or your things? He put that choice in front of this man, and here's how the man responded. Verse 22. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. He heard what Jesus called him to. He heard what it sounded like to go from full hands to empty hands. And he's like, ah, it seems impossible. That seems too much. And he walked away sad. This should break our hearts, but it should also convict us. Let me talk about those two just for a moment. 
It breaks our heart. It should break our heart because this is the real life story of a man who had everything but chose all of that instead of Jesus. He thought he had everything, but the one thing that he still lacked was complete surrender. And when Jesus gave him the choice, he did not choose surrendering to Jesus. He chose to hold on to his stuff. That should break our heart. That we think we have everything. We know we're still lacking. There's a reason this man came before Jesus. A man that seemed to have it all together, still knew there was something missing, still knew there was something that was lacking. He still wasn't certain. So he comes to this good teacher and says, what else am I missing? And when Jesus pointed it out to him, he says, I can't do that. And it broke his heart. I think what's most sad for me in that part is what Jesus asked this man to do most definitely was impossible. Sell everything, give it all away, and follow Jesus. Like that, woo, like that's up there. But I love that Jesus gives us another option. There's walk away sad, but there's also come to Jesus and say, I don't think I can do that. I don't know how to do that. I need you to help me with that. Like you're asking me to do something that's impossible, so I can't do that. I need you to do that, Jesus. I need you to help me with that. I need you to give me the grace and the mercy and the wisdom and the direction to do what you're calling me to do. This man could have run to Jesus and leaned in and said, I can't, but help me. Instead, he walked away sad. Should break our heart, it should also be a little convicting because we can't read this story and just point to that man over there. We need to say, what if Jesus asked me that? Like, I, I wrestle with that. Like, what if Jesus came up to me and says, Brian, here's what you're missing. Here's what you're lacking. Give it all up and follow me. I'd be like, oh, man, like, can you be a little bit more specific on all? <laughs> What's in that bucket exactly? Like, let's go through some, let's go through some things real quick. Like, that's a, that's a hard question. In fact, I, I was wrestling. I, I've been wrestling with this question this week. I almost did not bring this to you because I'm like, oh man, that's like, that's a really heavy question, but you're all adults. I'm sure you can handle it. If not, well, I probably won't see you next week. So <laughs> here's the question that I struggled with this week. Ready? What do you hope Jesus would never ask of you? I hate that question. I do not like thinking about that question. What do I hope Jesus never would ask of me? For this man in the story, in this moment, it was give up all your possessions. Jesus, I will do anything you ask. I will obey all these commands. I will give up almost everything. I will do whatever you want. I will follow you wherever you go. But please, whatever you do, do not ask me to give that up. I'm like, what is that for me? Jesus, I will follow you wherever. I will do whatever. I will obey you in all things. But just whatever you do, please don't ask me this one thing. Don't ask this of me. Oh, that's convicting. You know what, that, and I'm not trying to make you feel guilty here. I am trying to do what the law was intended to do. And if we hold it up like an x-ray, you know what that starts to show? That question, it starts to show what we still hold on to. It starts to show where we haven't fully surrendered. And now we have an option, don't we? We can either say, man, that's too much, I'm out. Or we can say, Jesus, I don't know how to give that up. Jesus, I don't know how to handle that. So I need you to help me. I pray that it causes you to lean in. May it break our hearts, but may it also be just convicting enough to move us closer to Jesus. So Jesus uses that idea, and then he begins to expound on it with his disciples. Verse 23, this man has walked away sad, now he's left with his disciples. So 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed them. But Jesus said again, dear children, I love that he used that language. Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. 
In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the, the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. Like Jesus is getting that point across. It's impossible. What do you have to do to inherit eternal life? What do you have to do to enter the kingdom of God? It's not possible for me or you. Go back to the, the language that we talked about with a child. How would we describe a child? Desperate, needy, empty-handed. And how is this man described? We know by the other gospel writers, authors, that he is wealthy, he is very capable, he has power, he has influence, he has riches and wealth, he has everything, he has no need, he has the energy and ability and capability to do what he wanted when he wanted it. He was strong and power, had energy and position, status, and obviously worked hard. One of those sounds like something we want to be like. And Jesus said, now I want you to come empty-handed. Not with all of what you've done, but come empty-handed. So the disciples struggle with this idea, of course. The disciples were astonished, verse 26. They were astonished. Well, then who in the world can be saved, they asked. That's the right question. <laughs> all right, Jesus, we, we've watched all this. We've heard all this. Who in the world can be saved? And then Jesus' answer in verse 27. Jesus looked at them intently and said, here it is, humanly possible, humanly, humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Let that hit. So we come to Jesus and, and we have all of those things and Jesus made it very clear. The more you have, the more you hold on to. And the more you hold on to it, the more you try even harder to hold on to it. And the harder you try to hold on to it, the more difficult it is to receive the kingdom of God. We cannot do that on our own. So we have to have Jesus do it for us, don't we? Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, everything is possible. The point that Jesus is helping his disciples, and he was trying to teach this, this rich young ruler, was it's not what you come to me with that you've done. It's not what you do. It's when you come empty-handed with a whole heart. It's who you know. Becky and I have some, some close friends, Ryan and Savannah. They have two kids. Their oldest child is Chapman. Uh, he'll turn four here in uh, just about a month. And he loves the band for King and Country. Like, absolutely loves it. In fact, he's got the whole drum kit. I'll, I'll put it, yeah, he's got the whole drummer deal. So you know the, like, drummer boy song that they're real famous for? It does not have to be Christmas. That song is always playing at their house. And, and here's Chapman just running around the house, just beating on this drum, loves for King and Country. Uh, well, that band was doing a tour not long ago, and they were somewhat close. They were over in South Carolina. So of course, Ryan and Savannah are like, we have to take Chapman. We have to take our kid who loves for King and Country. We have to take him to a concert. So they get the tickets, and then they start heading over to uh, South Carolina, and they get to the concert, and it was absolutely incredible. They get in and all this stuff, and then Becky and I start getting pictures of them and Chapman at the concert, and this is what we got. I mean, that's him on the side of the stage while King and Country is like warming up and doing all the rehearsals. He's like, no big deal. Like, I know the band, and he's just drawing, having a good time. So I start texting back to Ryan, Chapman's dad. I'm like, how in the world did you get those tickets? Like, how much did those cost? What'd you have to do to get over there? And then he sends me another picture. And I'm like, you're literally on the side of the stage. Like, how is this possible? And then I get a, I get a message back from Ryan. And he says, my sister's husband knows the drummer. And I'm like, 
how did we just find this out? <laughs> Why are we all not there? He says, my sister's husband knows the drummer. And the drummer told them, hey, when you get here, text me, come over to the side door, and I'll let you in. It's not what you do. It's who you know. And what Jesus is helping us understand is the same truth. The question that he was been, he's been answering is how do we receive eternal life? How do we inherit the kingdom of God? It's not with the full hand of all the things we've done. It's when we come empty-handed and wholehearted to Jesus. We say, I can't do this without you. We can spend our lives trying to do enough good. It will never be good enough. Remember what Jesus said? Only God is truly good. So we come to him and we recognize all of our sins and all of our flaws and we recognize all of our brokenness and it causes us to fall on our knees and say, Jesus, I'm broken. I am a sinner. I have so many flaws. I don't even know where to begin. So I'm coming to you with all of them because I can't fix this. What you're asking of me is impossible, but I refuse to walk away. So I run to you empty-handed. I'll let you take care of it. That's the posture he desires of us. That's the posture of a child that comes with empty hands, that doesn't deserve it, has done nothing to earn it, has no status, is not capable is dependent and needing and desperate. And Jesus says, that's who I want. Come to me like that. What's interesting is once we start coming to him like that and we follow him, do you know who we start to become like? Him. The good comes later. It's not where we start. We start with empty hands and a whole heart. I found in my own life, um, Coming up with the right words for prayers at times is difficult. I'm like, I don't even know what to say in these moments. This is one of those moments. So I want to just read the lyrics of the next song that we're going to sing. I think these are the words of a child coming empty-handed to Jesus. Here's what we're going to say together in a moment. I lay my life down on your altar. I want your will and nothing less. This is the death of my ambitions I know your ways are always best. I leave my heart open, open to you. I'm holding nothing back, nothing from you. Do you know him? Not just know of him, do you know him? Because it's not what you do, it's who you know. And when you come to him, are you coming with all of your accomplishments and all of your goodness? Or do you read this and you recognize you need him more than ever? I pray that this next song is not a song we sing. It's a song we pray. It's a song we declare. That this is how we come to Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And we come to him like a child. Let's pray. Jesus, we come empty to you. Broken in need, desperate, dependent, incapable, unable, 
but trusting. We come to you like a child with empty hands and a whole heart. May we know you more. And as we know you more, may you change us from the inside out and may we do the things you call us to do, not because we're asking what you want us to do, but because it's who we are and you live in us. Our identity is built on you. In this moment, Holy Spirit, would you just move in each of us? Would you move in this place? What does it look like for each and every one of us to have empty hands and to not walk away sad, but to lean in and follow you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.